Michelle Alexander is an associate professor of law at Ohio State University with a joint appointment at the Kirwan Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity. Previously, Ms. Alexander was a member of the faculty of Stanford Law School and director of the Racial Justice Project of the ACLU of Northern California. Her first book, which we're proud to have for sale upstairs after the event, is The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. Please join me in welcoming Michelle Alexander. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me and for that um, nice introduction. It's truly an honor to be here tonight. The subject I'm going to explore tonight, and that's the topic of my book, is one that many Americans, um, most Americans, seem content to ignore. Uh, conversations and debates about race today are frequently dismissed as yesterday's news. Um, we frequently hear our politicians and media pundits kind of telling us that we've entered into the era of post-racialism. Uh, the promised land of colorblindness is upon us. And not just in America, but around the world, President Barack Obama's election has been touted as the nation's triumph over race. You know, the final nail in the coffin of Jim Crow. You know, the bookend placed at the end of the ugly history of racial caste in America. This triumphant notion of post-racialism, um, in my view, is not just deeply misguided, but pure fiction. It's a type of you know, Orwellian doublespeak that is no less sinister by the virtue of the fact that some people actually believe what they're saying. Um, the mass incarceration of poor people of color in the United States amounts to a new caste system. Racial caste is alive and well in America. It's a new form of control largely racial control, that is specifically tailored to the economic needs and the social and political constraints of our time. It is, I believe, the practical and moral equivalent of Jim Crow. Now, I'm well aware that this type of claim is hard for many people to swallow. I acknowledge in the introduction of my book that I myself rejected this idea out of hand a little more than a decade ago. Particularly if you yourself have never spent time in prison or have been labeled a felon, you know, the idea that something akin to a new caste system could be operating in the United States may seem you know, downright absurd. But I first encountered you know, the idea of a new caste system about a decade ago. Um, when I was rushing to catch the bus, um, when I was living in Oakland and a bright orange poster was stapled to a telephone pole and it caught my eye and on it, in big bold print, it said, the drug war is the new Jim Crow. And I paused and you know, checked out the flyer and I saw that a radical community group was holding a meeting a few blocks away in a tiny you know, community church and they were organizing to protest um, the three strikes law in California, the expansion of the prison system and police brutality. And I remember kind of pausing and thinking to myself, 
you know, yeah, you know, the criminal justice system is racist in a lot of ways, but it doesn't help to make those kinds of absurd comparisons. You know, people just think you're crazy. And then I crossed the street and hopped on the bus, you know, on my way to my new job as director of the Racial Justice Project of the ACLU. <laughs> now, you know, when I, when I started my job um, there, I had been a civil rights lawyer for a number of years, um, primarily focused on employment discrimination. I was doing large class action employment discrimination cases, suing Fortune 500 companies for discrimination and hiring and promotion practices. And I had come to believe um, that, you know, the criminal justice system was much like all institutions in our society infected with conscious and unconscious bias. You know, I was very familiar with the ways in which unconscious bias as well as conscious bias can, you know, infect decision-making of all kinds, at all levels of an institution with disastrous consequences. So when I got to the ACLU, I thought, well, I'm just going to shift my attention from employment discrimination to criminal justice reform and work with others to kind of root out racial bias wherever and whenever it rears its ugly head in the criminal justice system. But by the time I left the ACLU, you know, after years of working on issues of racial profiling, drug law enforcement practices in poor communities of color, problems associated with re-entry, police brutality, I came to the conclusion I was just wrong about the criminal justice system. It's not just another institution in our society infected with racial bias, but a different beast entirely. You know, the activists who posted the sign on the telephone pole, they weren't crazy, you know, nor were the smattering of lawyers and advocates around the country that were beginning to connect the dots between mass incarceration and earlier forms of racial control. So, you know, really quite belatedly, I came to see that the mass incarceration of poor people of color really has emerged as a stunningly comprehensive and well-disguised system of racial control analogous to Jim Crow. I state kind of my basic thesis in the introduction. I say, what has changed since the collapse of Jim Crow has less to do with the basic structure of our society than the language we use to justify it. In the era of colorblindness, it is no longer socially permissible to use race explicitly as a justification for discrimination, exclusion, and social contempt. So we don't. Rather than rely on race, we use our criminal justice system to label people of color criminals and then engage in all the practices we supposedly left behind. Today, it is perfectly legal to discriminate against criminals in nearly all the ways it was once legal to discriminate against African Americans. Once you're labeled a felon, the old forms of discrimination, employment discrimination, housing discrimination, denial of the right to vote, automatic exclusion from juries, denial of public benefits, suddenly legal. As a criminal, you have scarcely more rights and arguably less respect than a black man living in Alabama at the height of Jim Crow. We have not ended racial caste in America, we have merely redesigned it. So here are a few of the facts I uncovered in the course of my research and writing this book that 
you may not have heard. More African Americans are under correctional control today, in prison or jail, on probation or parole, than were enslaved in 1850, a decade before the Civil War began. As of 2004, more black men were disenfranchised due to felon disenfranchisement laws than in 1870, the year the 15th Amendment was ratified prohibiting laws that explicitly deny the right to vote on the basis of race. And if you take into account prisoners, a large majority of African-American men in some urban areas have been labeled felons for life. In the Chicago area, the figure is nearly 80 percent. These men are part of a growing undercaste, you know, not class, caste, a group of people defined largely by race that are relegated to a second-class status permanently by law. They can be denied the right to vote, automatically excluded from juries, and legally discriminated against in virtually every area of social, economic, and political life. You know, I find that when I tell people, you know, that I think mass incarceration is a new caste system or amounts to a new Jim Crow, you know, I'm often met with, you know, laughter or, you know, shock disbelief. People say, well, how can you say that? You know, just look at Barack Obama. Just look at Oprah Winfrey. Look at Colin Powell. But the fact that some African Americans today have had great success does not mean that something akin to a racial caste system no longer exists. You know, no caste system in the United States has ever governed all African Americans. There have always been free blacks and black success stories, you know, even during slavery and Jim Crow. You know, the extraordinary nature of individual black achievement in formerly white domains today certainly suggests that the old Jim Crow system is dead. But it doesn't necessarily mean the end of racial caste. You know, if history is any guide, it may have just taken a different form. You know, any honest observer of American history, I think, has to acknowledge that the rules and reasons the legal system employs to enforce status relations of any kind, they evolve and they change as they're challenged. In the first chapter of the book, I spend kind of a great deal of time describing kind of the cyclical rebirths of caste in America. You know, since our nation's founding, African Americans have repeatedly been controlled through institutions like slavery and Jim Crow, which appear to die, but then are reborn, tailored to the needs and constraints of the time. Just as Jim Crow emerged to replace slavery, I believe mass incarceration has replaced Jim Crow. The emergence of this new system of control has been sudden, you know, and quite dramatic. No one would have predicted this, you know, just a few decades ago. No one. In less than 30 years, the U.S. penal population has exploded from around 300,000 to more than 2 million people. You know, we have the highest rate of incarceration in the world, dwarfing even highly repressive regimes like China and Iran. You know, in fact, if we were just to go back to the rate of incarceration we had back in the 1970s, you know, a time when many criminal justice reformers and civil rights activists 
actually thought rates of incarceration were egregiously high. But if we were to go back even to the bad old days of the 1970s, we'd have to release four out of five people who are in prison today. More than a million people employed by the criminal justice system could lose their jobs. Now, that's how enormous and entrenched the system has become in an exceedingly short period of time. In my view, though, the racial dimension of mass incarceration is its most striking feature. You know, no other country in the world imprisons such a large percentage of racial and ethnic minorities. It was estimated several years ago that in Washington, D.C., you know, our nation's capital, three out of four young black men and nearly all those in the poorest neighborhoods could expect to serve time in prison. You know, rates of incarceration nearly as shocking can be found in other communities of color across America. So what accounts for this vast new system of control? You know, crime rates? <laughs> That's the answer we're often given um, by politicians and in the media. But no, you know, as most sociologists and criminologists will tell you, crime rates have remarkably little to do with incarceration rates. Um, crime rates have fluctuated over the past 30 years and are today at historical lows, but incarceration rates have consistently soared, skyrocketed. So what does you know, explain this vast new system of control? Well, it turns out that the activists who posted the sign on the telephone pole were right. The war on drugs is the engine of mass incarceration in the United States. Convictions for drug offenses are the single most important cause of the explosion in our prison system. Um, drug convictions account for about two-thirds of the increase in the federal system and more than half of the increase in the state system. Drug convictions have increased more than 1,000% since the drug war began. So who's the enemy in this war? Well, you know, most Americans violate drug laws in their lifetime. But in this war, the enemy has been racially defined. The drug war has been waged almost exclusively in poor communities of color, even though studies have consistently shown that people of color are no more likely to use or sell illegal drugs than whites. Now, that defies you know, our basic stereotype of who a drug dealer is. Um, in fact, there was a study done in the 1990s in which people were asked to close their eyes and imagine for a moment you know, a drug user, a drug dealer. 95% describe someone who is African-American. Only 5% describe someone of any other race or ethnicity. In that study, 95% imagined an African-American. But, you know, illegal drug markets, much like, you know, American society generally, are, are fairly racially segregated. You know, drug dealing happens everywhere, but blacks tend to sell to blacks, whites tend to sell to whites, Latinos tend to sell to each other. Drug dealing happens in the ghetto, to be sure, but it happens everywhere else in America as well. You know, rural whites don't drive to the hood 
to get, to, you know, their marijuana or their meth or their cocaine. They get it from somebody down the road. Um, but the drug war has been focused almost exclusively in ghetto communities. Our nation's prisons and jails are overflowing with black and brown drug offenders, and in fact, in some states, 80 to 90 percent of all drug offenders admitted to prison have been African American. You know, I find that many people are willing to concede the racial disparities when they're confronted with the data. No, but even so, they tend to insist that the drug war has a benign motive. You know, it's being waged in ghetto communities because that's where all the violent offenders are. It makes sense to concentrate law enforcement resources in those poor communities of color because that's where the drug kingpins and the violent offenders can be found. In fact, you know, in my experience, most people believe that the war on drugs itself was launched in response to rising drug crime and the emergence of crack cocaine in inner-city communities. In fact, I believed that myself for a while. But the truth is, the war on drugs was waged in 1982, was announced, formally announced, by Ronald Reagan in 1982, a couple of years before crack hit the streets and became a sensation in the media. In fact, when Ronald Reagan announced the drug war, drug crime was actually on the decline, not on the rise. The drug war was not launched in response to drug crime, it was launched in response to racial politics. The drug war was part of the Republican Party's kind of grand strategy, often referred to as the Southern strategy, of using racially coded political appeals on issues of crime and welfare to appeal to poor and working class whites who felt threatened by and resentful of desegregation, busing, affirmative action, many of the gains of the civil rights movement. And Republican Party strategists openly acknowledged that if they use these kind of racially coded, get tough you know, appeals on issues of crime and welfare, they could get poor and working class white voters to defect from the Democratic kind of New Deal coalition and join the Republican Party, particularly in the South. So the war on drugs was part of President Ronald Reagan's effort to make good on his campaign promises to get tough and crack down on a racially defined other. Now, there's good reason that poor and working class whites back then felt insecure and vulnerable. Um, it was their world that was being rocked by the civil rights movement, not white elites. White elites could send their kids to private schools and avoid kind of the social upheaval and changes that were brought by the civil rights movement. But it was poor and working class whites who themselves were economically vulnerable and struggling for survival that for the first time had to compete with people they had always been taught to believe were inferior for decent jobs. So that resentment was exploited by politicians and the war on drugs was born, not because of drug crime, but because of those racial politics. And a couple of years after the drug war was announced, crack cocaine hit inner-city communities, Los Angeles and later across the country. And the Reagan administration seized on the emergence of crack cocaine with glee, actually hiring staff to publicize crack babies, 
crack whores, crack dealers in inner-city communities. The goal was to make inner-city crack use and sales a media sensation in order to bolster public support for the new drug war and to get Congress to devote millions of more dollars to its expansion. And the plan worked like a charm, right? Within months, you know, the TV news or evening news was saturated with images of black and brown, you know, drug offenders, you know, media images that forever changed, you know, our conceptions of who drug users and dealers are and what should be done about them. Almost immediately, Democrats began competing with Republicans to prove that they could be even tougher on them than their Republican counterparts. Um, Clinton's tough-on-crime policies actually, you know, amounted to the greatest increase in African-American incarceration rates of any president in American history. You know, in an effort to appeal to those so-called kind of white swing voters, you know, he championed, you know, ending welfare as we know it, and he also championed many of the laws that now form the basic architecture of the new caste system. For example, laws banning drug offenders from public housing and denying them even food stamps for life. I find, though, that you know, one of the biggest myths about the drug war, you know, aside from you know, the notion that it was launched in response to, to drug crime, is that it is now focused on rooting out drug kingpins or violent offenders. Not true. Not true. Federal funding flows to those agencies that boost dramatically the volume of their drug arrests. State and local law enforcement agencies get funding for the drug war based on the sheer numbers of drug arrests, not for bringing down drug kingpins or drug bosses. And federal drug forfeiture laws allow state and local law enforcement agencies to keep 80% of the cash, cars, homes that they seize from suspected drug offenders, giving them a direct monetary interest in the profitability of the drug market. Now, the results are predictable. You know, people of color have been rounded up in mass for relatively minor, nonviolent drug offenses. You know, in 2005, for example, four out of five drug arrests were for possession. Only one out of five were for sales. Most people in state prison um, for drug offenses today have no history of violence or significant selling activity. In fact, during the 1990s, you know, the period of the greatest expansion of the drug war, nearly 80% of the increase in drug arrests were for marijuana possession. You know, a drug that's now kind of widely believed to be less harmful than alcohol or tobacco and is certainly as prevalent in suburban and middle-class white communities as it is in the ghetto. So in this way, a new racial undercaste has been created in a remarkably short period of time. Millions of people of color are now saddled with felony records and legally denied the very rights that were supposedly won in the civil rights movement. Now, the U.S. Supreme Court, for its part, has mostly turned a blind eye to race discrimination in the criminal justice system. Um, 
you know, in a series of cases, um, McCleskey versus Kemp and Armstrong versus the United States, the Supreme Court has closed the courthouse doors to claims of racial bias at every stage of the criminal justice process, from stops and searches to plea bargaining and sentencing. The court has essentially said that no matter how great the racial disparities, no matter how overwhelming the statistical evidence, unless you can offer proof of conscious, intentional bias, you can't even get in the courthouse door. Now, that is precisely the type of evidence that's unavailable today when everyone knows not to say, I did it because he's black. So no matter how overwhelming the racial disparities or statistical evidence, claims of racial bias cannot succeed today. People ask me all the time, you know, why don't I hear more cases about racial bias in the criminal justice system? It's so bad. Why aren't more people suing? There should be class action cases challenging racial bias in the criminal justice system. The reason those cases aren't being brought isn't because the problem doesn't exist, but because they don't have a cause of action that they can bring in court, thanks to the rulings by the Supreme Court, which has now immunized the new caste system much in the way that it rallied to the defense of earlier systems of control. Well, I want to turn just for a few moments to some of the parallels between mass incarceration and Jim Crow. You know, Jim Crow, of course, you know, is a system of, of laws, policies, and customs um, that operated to discriminate against African Americans um, in virtually every aspect of social, political, and economic life. Well, ask yourself if some of the rules and laws governing felons today kind of remind you of a bygone era. Denial of the right to vote, right? 47 states in the District of Columbia deny prisoners the right to vote. But that's just the tip of the iceberg because in the United States, pretty much the only country in the world that denies people the right to vote once they've been released from prison in many states. Uh, in fact, uh, about one out of four African-American men have been permanently disenfranchised in a few states as a result of felon disenfranchisement laws. And nationwide, the figure is about one in seven. Employment discrimination. Employment discrimination, perfectly legal once you're branded a felon, right? Job applications ranging from Burger King clerk to accountant, got the box. Yeah, got to check that box if you've ever been convicted of a felony. Thousands of professional licenses are off-limits to people who are labeled felons. In some states, you can't even get a license to be a barber if you've been convicted of a felony. Right? Housing discrimination, perfectly legal. You know, back in the Jim Crow era, it was the era of res racially restrictive covenants. Right? Well, today, you can be discriminated against on the basis of your criminal history. In fact, public housing is off limits to you for a minimum of five years. Minimum of five years if you've been convicted of a felony. So here you are, newly released from prison, right? No money, no job. Public housing is off limits to you. Private landlords are free to discriminate against you. And, you know, your mother, aunt, sister, girlfriend who lives in public housing, well, she risks eviction by housing you allowing you to stay, to stay in the apartment, right? So what are these folks to do? No job, can't find a place to stay, right? 
What are they expected to do? Well, they're actually expected to pay thousands of dollars in fees and fines. Following the collapse of slavery, you know, black men were routinely arrested for you know, extremely minor crimes like loitering or vagrancy, right? They were arrested and sent to work on plantations through a program known as kind of convict leasing, right? The idea was that they had to earn their freedom, but the catch was they could never earn enough to pay back the costs of their shelter and their food and their clothing, and so they remained in perpetual servitude, a system that um, you know, some have called worse than slavery, right? Well, today we have a similar system. Um, even if a former prisoner manages to get a job, you know, you're one of the lucky few who manages to get a job, up to 100% of your wages can be garnished to pay back the cost of your imprisonment, to pay back fees, fines, and court costs, to pay back accumulated child support while you were in prison. So here you're one of the lucky few, you get a job, up to 100% of your wages can be garnished. What is the system designed to do? put you right back in prison. In fact, that is what happens about 70% of the time. Within three years, 70% of released prisoners are returned. And in fact, the majority of those who are returned are returned within a few months because the hurdles, the barriers you're just making it on the outside are so extreme. Public benefits. Don't expect even to be fed if you have a drug felony. Discrimination is perfectly legal against those who've been labeled felons and public benefits. In fact, if you're a drug felon, you're ineligible for food stamps for the rest of your life, thanks to President Clinton. Even if you're a pregnant woman, someone with HIV or AIDS, basic food stamps off limits to you for the rest of your life. Exclusion from jury service. You know, of course, one of the hallmarks of the Jim Crow, of the Jim Crow era was, were the all-white juries, you know, particularly in the South. Well, today, those labeled felons are automatically considered ineligible for jury service. In some areas of the country, you know, the all-white jury has come roaring back because such a large percentage of the African-American community is deemed ineligible for jury service. Now get this, even if you haven't been branded a felon yet, if you have negative experiences with law enforcement that disqualifies you from serving on the jury if it might lead you to be you know, impartial in a criminal case. So good luck, you know, in many communities of color, finding someone who has not yet had a negative experience with law enforcement that just might justify your exclusion from a jury. But as bad as all the formal barriers, you know, to political, economic, and social exclusion are, as bad as all these formal barriers are, in my experience, many people labeled criminals find the stigma the hardest to bear. You know, it's not just the denial of the job, but the look that flashes across an employer's face when he sees the box has been checked. It's not just the denial of housing, but being a grown man having to beg your grandma for a place to sleep at night because nowhere else will take you in. You know, in fact, the shame and stigma associated with criminality is so severe 
that many people label criminals try to pass, right? You know, during the Jim Crow era, you know, light-skinned blacks would often try to pass to avoid the shame, stigma, and discrimination associated with race. Well, today, you know, people labeled criminals lie, not just to employers and to housing officials, but also to their friends, family members, acquaintances, because the stigma of criminality is so difficult to bear. There's a, a fascinating ethnographic study that was done by a Georgetown law professor in Washington, D.C., in which they went into neighborhoods hardest hit by mass incarceration. These are neighborhoods where literally, you know, every apartment or every house on a block either had somebody in prison or someone who's newly released. These are neighborhoods where you would think, you know, criminality would just be normalized, right? That prison time would be something that everybody would just kind of shrug their shoulders at. But even in these neighborhoods hardest hit by mass incarceration, they found that not one person had fully come out to their friends, neighbors, or loved ones about their own criminal status or the status of their loved ones. That the shame associated with criminality was so severe that a silence had befallen communities that had been the hardest hit by mass incarceration. And this eerie silence, I believe, has led many of us to remain in a state of denial. Now, denial. There's two major reasons, I believe, that we as a nation have remained in deep denial about the existence of racial caste in America. And the first is traceable to a profound misunderstanding about how racial oppression actually works. You know, if someone were to visit the United States from another country or another planet and ask, you know, is the U.S. criminal justice system some kind of tool of racial control? You know, most Americans would just flatly deny it. They'd say, no, you know, absolutely not. You know, the visitor would be told that crime rates or bad schools, black culture were to blame. Um, they'd say, this system's not run by a bunch of racists, it's run by people who are trying to fight crime. Right? The idea that racial caste systems require overt conscious bigotry in order to thrive is one of the biggest misconceptions that allow us to remain in denial about the existence of racial caste. Now, you know, if you go back and actually read the speeches of Martin Luther King, and I don't mean the little sound bites that get recycled you know, during Black History Month, but if you go back and read his actual speeches, what you see is that time and time again, he was reminding folks that racial caste systems depend on racial indifference, indifference, not conscious racial bigotry, that the systems of slavery and Jim Crow existed and were maintained by the indifference of suffering of people of other races, right? He would often you know, say, many of the people who support Jim Crow, who vote for racial segregation, they're not evil people. They're not bad people. Many of them actually consciously wish well for their black maids, their black shoe shiners. They consciously have benign 
intent towards them, but they're blind. They're blind to the suffering of people of other races. And that that was true even of the system of slavery. The system of slavery wasn't motivated by a sadistic plot to harm blacks. It was motivated by greed. And racial difference was the rationalization, which made it possible to be indifferent to the suffering of people of other races. Now, the same is true today, right? People of goodwill and bad you know, have been unwilling to see black and brown men in particular in their humanness, right? Entitled to the same care, compassion, and concern that might be extended to one's friends or loved ones, you know? After all, you know, who among us, who among us would want a loved one struggling with drug addiction or drug abuse to be put in a cage, labeled a felon, and then subjected to a lifetime of discrimination, scorn, and social exclusion. Who would want that for anyone they actually cared about, right? Well, most Americans would not. But who do we care about? You know, in America, the answer to the question, who do we care about, is still profoundly linked to race. And it's this indifference to the plight of people of other races that supported the institutions of slavery, of Jim Crow, and now mass incarceration. But another reason that we remain in deep denial is that we have a false picture of our racial reality. You know, prisoners are literally erased from our economic picture. Poverty statistics, unemployment statistics, they don't count people who are behind bars. They're treated as though they don't exist. So standard unemployment statistics, you know, when you read in the newspaper, the black unemployment rate is X, well, you can just go ahead and add 15 to 20 percentage points to that. Standard unemployment figures undercount the amount of black unemployment today by as much as 24 percentage points because they fail to take into account the vast numbers of African-Americans behind bars. In fact, you know, during the Clinton years, the 1990s, kind of the economic boom time for the rest of America, African-American men were the only group, the only group in America to experience a steep increase in real joblessness. And that was directly traceable to their rapid inclusion in the criminal justice system. Affirmative action, though, you know, it's kind of put a happy face on this racial reality, right? Seeing black people graduate from Harvard and Yale and become CEOs and corporate lawyers, you know, much less president of the United States, you know, causes us all to marvel. You know, whoa, what a long way we have come. But much of black progress, it turns out, is a myth. You know, African Americans as a group, as a group, are actually not doing much better than they were in 1968 when Martin Luther King was assassinated and uprisings swept you know, inner-city communities across America. The black poverty rate is roughly the same as it was back then. The child black poverty rate is actually higher today than it was back then. The unemployment rate in black communities rival those in third-world countries, and that's with affirmative action. So when we pull back the curtain and take a look at what our so-called colorblind society creates without affirmative action, you know, what we see 
is a familiar social, economic, and political structure. And it's the structure of racial caste. And the entrance into this new caste system can be found at the prison gate. So where do we go from here? You know, what can be done to dismantle this new system of control? Well, I spend the last chapter of my book exploring this question in some depth, but one thing uh, I think is clear is that those of us in the civil rights community, we've allowed a human rights nightmare to occur on our watch. While many of us, you know, were nearly obsessed with defending affirmative action and trying to hold on to the gains of the past, millions of people of color have been rounded up, branded felons, and then released into a parallel social universe in which they are denied kind of the very rights that you know, our parents or grandparents fought for and some died for. What is needed, I believe, is a broad-based social movement. Piecemeal policy reform is not going to get it. We are not going to get back to the incarceration rates even of the bad old days of the 1970s with piecemeal policy reform, filing a lawsuit here, trying to get you know, a slight reduction in mandatory minimum sentences there. No. We're going to end mass incarceration as we know it today. A broad-based social movement, one that rivals the civil rights movement in size, scale, depth, and courage. Right? And it has to be a multiracial and multi-ethnic movement that includes poor whites, a group that is constantly pitted against poor people of color, resulting in the rise of successive new caste systems. This drug war and the system of mass incarceration now affects people of all colors. The war on drugs was launched with black folks in mind, but it's a hungry beast. And in California today, Latinos are the primary targets of the drug war. And now that Wall Street interests and investors have realized they can make a fortune off the prison industry, we see private detention centers for immigrants being opened, right? To house more folks of color for a profit. This impulse to exploit racial fears genuine economic vulnerabilities for political and economic gain, that's the root of this, right? And we need to build a broad-based social movement that changes our culture and not just our laws, if we are going to bring an end not just to mass incarceration, but to the history of racial caste in America. But before this movement can get underway, I think a, a, a great awakening is required, right? We've got to awake from this colorblind slumber to the realities of race in America. And we have to take responsibility for ending racial caste today and for future generations who actually want to believe in the promise and the rhetoric of America. Be happy to take your questions. Hi, uh, thank you very much, Professor. Um, 
So my question is coming from um, the, I work with an organization, Critical Resistance, uh, the abolitionist organization. Um, so now that you've you know, helped elucidate um, that the prison and policing regime um, is not a broken system, but it's working to lock up my friends and family and probably many of our friends and family in this room, um, what do you make of the calls for abolition? Um, well, I think, I think it's incredibly important for the word abolition to be part of this conversation, absolutely. You know, um, I find that people often don't realize that, you know, in the early 1970s, most respected criminologists thought that the prison system was gonna fade away. The consensus amongst criminologists, you know, in the early 1970s was that prisons were a complete failure they didn't actually work to deter crime, and they were more likely to create a new class of criminals than were to solve crime or to make communities safer. Um, and in fact, the National Commission um, on Crime and Criminal Justice Standards in 1972 released a statement recommending that no new prisons be built and existing institutions for juveniles be closed. And there was a, a prison um, abolition, prison moratorium movement that was underway in the early 1970s um, that many believed had great chance of success. The idea that we as a society would function much better without prisons as we know them um, was actually part of mainstream criminological discourse. It's now often dismissed as kind of far-fetched, you know, kind of radical speak, right? But that was part of mainstream criminal discourse. Now, I think it's very difficult for folks to imagine us having a system in which people who are violent pose a real threat to community aren't removed, right? Well, those folks do need to be removed from our society but they don't necessarily need to be put in cages and dehumanized in the way our modern system dehumanizes those who have been branded criminals or a threat to society. So when you say prison abolition, I say yes, if you mean ending prisons as we know them, as a site for dehumanization and often practices that amount close to torture. Um, you know, we have people who spend years in solitary confinement in this country, you know, practice that is considered torture in most other countries around the world. So, yes, I think we need to have abolition, the word is part of the conversation, and we need to think about not just tinkering with the system, but redesigning it um, from the bottom up. Hi, David Hart. I'd like to ask how do you envision the abolition of felony, prejudice, discrimination, and stigma? That's part one. Part two would be with a million individuals who are all in on the, um, the employment within the prison system, what could our government do to uh, put those people to work in another area? Yeah, good questions. Um, 
Well, first, I think one of the things that we can do in our own communities to reduce the stigma associated with, with being branded a criminal in today's era is to come out, right? To, to create safe spaces for people who've been branded felons to talk about their experience um, and to be able to say, yes, you know, I spent time in behind bars or I have a sister or a brother or a mother who has done time, to end the silence about those who have been branded in our own families and the silence for those who have been branded themselves um, and to begin talking and sharing and sh extending compassion and concern and support for those people and, 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 and those families um, who are dealing um, with the fallout of mass incarceration, right? But I think we also need to begin to embrace, move from the language of civil rights to human rights in our advocacy, right? Human rights can't be forfeited, right? They don't depend on good behavior, right? They don't depend on you being a member of any particular class, status. A human right to work, a human right to shelter, a human right to food exists regardless of who you are, where you've been, or what you've done. And the basic human rights um, of folks who are released from prison are being violated today. They're being denied the right to work, the right to basic housing, the right even to food stamps. Um, and these are human rights violations that need to be acknowledged and we need to begin organizing around you know, the necessity for honoring people's basic human rights, which means ending all forms of legal discrimination against those who've been branded felons. Hello, my name is Arthur Argomanes. Um, I do some, some work working with youth inside juvenile halls. I, I recently graduated from um, the campus um, just on the other side of town. Um, but as a, as a student, um, as someone who has, you know, done, has worked with um, law enforcement community, you know, to improve community law enforcement relations to help youngsters stay out of this kind of negative contact. Any contact is almost negative. And even um, I myself have, have learned, um, you know, growing up very, at a very early age, ignore any contact possible because everything you say, do anything, I mean, more and more things are becoming illegal nowadays. I mean, any, any little act could put you in a gang book and that's, you know, they build your jacket and it just starts building and building from these law enforcement strategies such as, you know, even myself being, you know, telling a cop all these things, all these things that I do, these people I work with and he's still, um, you know, pulling me out of the car to search the car with my three-year-old daughter in the back seat. Um, you know, such, such things like this, people getting pulled over for the minorest of infractions while other people will not be, which is blatant um, racial profiling, but how do we um, work with youngsters to make sure that, you know, they're not, um, you know, it's, it's almost like if you assert your rights, they're going to mess with you more. They're going to test you. You can't test them because they're going to continue to test you. They're law enforcement. They have ultimate power. And it's, a, it's, a, it's very similar to um, similar struggles in the past where, where young people have been criminalized, entire communities. Um, and even if you're not from that community, um, going to school in South Central, riding around, I'm, I'm, I'm getting hit up by um, LAPD. Where are you from? Um, by the security on campus. You know, what are you doing? Why are you on campus? Can I see your student ID? Or by the local gang members and the, the youngsters, you know, you know, where are you riding around your bike? You know, you, this is a neighborhood. And um, the question is, you know, how do we continue to work with our youngsters, with our young people, and how do we um, fight that, that criminalization of those of us that do work with them? Very important question. And, you know, 
<clears throat> back when I was at the ACLU, I was often asked to give Know Your Rights talks um, to groups. And after a while, I stopped giving them because um, I came to the realization that many of these rights that exist on paper don't exist um, on the street. And that when folks would assert their rights and say, no officer, you may not search my car, you know, what is the justification for your stop? You know, questions and responses that perfectly legal and legitimate, they would be met with overwhelming force, right? Um, and so I no longer felt comfortable preaching <laughs> about rights um, that did not exist in practice for so many people um, of color. And how you talk to young people about this, I think, is, is difficult. I have three children as well, and I struggle with them about what to say about the police, right? Um, you know, so much of the programming they get from the movies and the cartoons, the police are the good guys out to get the bad guys, and the whole uh, kind of dichotomy between the good guys and the bad guys with the police being the good guys is programmed into kids at young ages. I think it's important for us to tell the truth, to tell the truth to young people about um, what their rights sh really should be and what happens in the street. Um, the fact that no, you may not be able to trust an officer, no, you may not actually be treated fairly, but this is how you can be treated. And you, know, you have dignity and you need to show self-respect. And there is a way in which you can take action on your own behalf. If you're treated wrongly, you know, if your children are very young, say, come to me and I will help you organize to fight back. Teaching our kids to organize, to speak out, to find their own voice, I think is the most important gift we can give them in an era in which they're criminalized and taught um, that nothing much will become of them except you know, a prison number. Thanks, Michelle. Uh, Susan Burton, I'd like to ask, while you were doing your research for this book and seeing this, discovering or uncovering this um, new caste system, was there, what were the numbers that you maybe uncovered of how many people in America are a part of this um, being denied their human rights, yes. being challenged to have their human rights. Yes, well, you know, unfortunately, there are, there are no kind of hard, reliable numbers about exactly how many people in the United States have been branded felons and are thus subject to this you know, second-class status defined by law. But as I indicated, you know, earlier, in many large urban areas, large majorities of African-American men have been branded felons um, and, um, you know, are thus subject to legalized discrimination for the rest of their lives. And, you know, we often, I think, focus on the numbers of people behind, you know, prison bars, but the numbers of people who are on, you know, correct, under correctional supervision are great, far greater than the number of people who are behind bars. There's about, you know, two million, more than two million people in prison and jail today. 
Well, there's more than you know, five million, depending on how you count, between five and seven million people under correctional control on, on pro parole or probation. I mean, they're under you know, constant supervision by the police and subject you know, to an array of rules and laws that don't apply to the rest of us, right? You know, for example, you know, not associating with other felons <laughs> is often a condition of your probation or parole, and associating with other felons can land you right back in, in prison. Well, you know, in many ghetto communities today, good luck taking a walk to the corner store without, you know, associating with other people who have been labeled felons. Um, so the system is rigged in countless ways for people who are under, you know, supervision to be returned um, to the prison system in, in short order. Um, many millions of people in the United States are under, are subject to that kind of constant supervision. Uh, Joseph Sanchez, I'm a probation commissioner. I have 21 juvenile halls that we oversee. And uh, my question is based on, um, I really enjoyed um, all the stats, everything you brought, and, but in the closing of your, of your book, um, in getting some solutions done, I just had a kid last week do 15 to 20, li uh, 20 to life at 15 years of age. Mm -hmm. So in the next, the next uh, two to six months, we're going to have 67,000 parolees, which are felons that will be released. And uh, um, so my question to you would be, how, would, um, how can we come together uh, uh, and, and be able to combat this particular um, it's a virus? Uh, whereas uh, also the heroin addiction, the heroin that was launched back in the 1950s, okay, where today um, we find the black and brown conflict right now very, in, very, very heavy as far as uh, the setas. I don't know if you're up with the setas and if you're up also with the casitas, okay, which all the war that's going on in Tijuana right now. I work on that particular flow also. Whereas the Latinos right now in California, we are growing, we are growing inside the institutions massively and taking the lead also in uh, um, truancy. So my question to you would be, uh, um, how, can we, how can we come together? Because with the Latino, with, with the prison gangs that I've worked with also and working with right now, okay, they have now surpassed the African-American in the juvenile halls and, and the camps, and, 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 and they don't care if they get out or they don't. Okay, so, um, on the, and it's all about the drugs. The African-American in, in California now doesn't have any juice okay, in the area of, of uh, drugs anymore. It's, it's the Aryan Brotherhood, and it's also the Mexican Mafia. So my question, very simple, is this. How do we combat that? Well, I wish I had a pat answer, <laughs> but I don't. Um, but I do think that um, beginning this conversation um, is, is a critical first step. But I think also... Um, there's two things that I think especially have to happen kind of with our, our young people, right? One is they have to really get this as a setup, right? They have to really get that this is a setup, you know? And we, if they understand this is a, a racial caste system and you warring with each other is nothing but playing your assigned part in the game, right? Yeah, and so it, to have a consciousness um, that uh, awaken a consciousness in young folks that there is another role for them in this system, 
besides gangster, right? You know, I talk a little bit in my book about the fact that many people say to me, well, how can you say that, you know, criminality is stigmatized when, you know, all you have to do is turn on the TV and you see, you know, rappers and folks embracing gangster life and this and that, you know, how can you say that, you know, there's a stigma associated with it? I said, well, you know, psychologists have known for decades that when a hopelessly stigmatized group feels that there's no chance for self-esteem, the only path for survival is embracing your stigma, right? You know, so hence, black is beautiful, right? Gay pride. You know, those are kind of mottos and anthems that were about embracing your stigma and turning it into a positive um, and it was actually a form of resistance, right, against the kind of dominant society. But the problem is, is that today, where the stigma is criminality, you're nothing but a criminal, the survival strategy is say, yeah, I'm a criminal. I am a criminal. Turning it into a positive and embracing it. Well, I think we need to be able to help young people construct another positive identity that is a form of resistance, right? Um, you know, I... I appreciate, but I'm often impatient with people who kind of lecture young folks about, well, if you just stay in school, and if you just do this, and if you just do that, kind of wagging the finger, I think that those strategies, although they're well-intentioned, I think they failed to honor and acknowledge the racial reality that exists in those communities. And if you don't provide an opportunity for young folks to actually engage in meaningful resistance and have an identity that's linked to that resistance, um, well, then they have little choice but to embrace their stigma. Um, so I think, you know, helping folks understand the nature of the system and that they have a role to play in resisting it um, is, is essential. The industrial complex, yes. how involved are they in the prison system and how long this been going on? How, how long? Oh, prison labor. I see. I'm sorry. I was having trouble hearing you up here. Um, yes, well, you know, in many respects, um, slavery is a better analogy for many folks who are in prison than Jim Crow, right? Because in many prisons today, um, people are forced to work for little or no pay, often corporations um, that make a profit off of, you know, prison labor, right? Um, you know, this goes on, you know, all around the country where corporations avoid paying minimum wage, not just by shipping jobs overseas, but moving them behind bars. Um, and I'm glad you raised this because I think one of the kind of critical elements of the emergence of mass incarceration is actually the dramatic changes in our economy over the last kind of few decades. You know, um, in the 1950s, the areas that we think of today as ghettos were actually doing quite well. You know, there was severe racial discrimination to be sure, but, you know, people had jobs. There were businesses. Um, they were stable communities. Um, well, what happened? Well, you know, if you were just to listen to mainstream media, you'd think that suddenly, you know, African-Americans just decided they didn't want to work anymore and, you know, they just wanted to sell drugs and go to jail, right? Well, no, what happened is that 
globalization resulted in the closing of factories that were located in these urban centers. You know, as late as 1970, a majority of African-American men in major cities worked in industrial jobs, right? But practically overnight, those factories closed, moved overseas, um, and suddenly you know, there's waves of joblessness in these inner city communities. Um, you know, in the 1950s, rates of black and white employment were about the same. But by the early 1980s, black unemployment had quadrupled. White unemployment had only increased marginally, right? So in the early 1980s, when the drug war was kicking off, inner city communities were suffering from economic collapse. Hundreds of thousands of people were suddenly jobless. Now, we could have responded, right, with economic stimulus packages and job training programs to help people, you know, particularly youth in these communities, make the rough transition from an industrial to kind of a more of a service-based economy. But instead, what do we do? We waged the war on drugs, and we ended welfare as we know it, right? So no longer needed to pick cotton in the fields or labor in factories, you know, Black men were rounded up in droves and shipped off to prison. Well, not long after that, corporations found, well, we can make good use of those folks now that they're behind bars, <laughs> right? And we see now a return to kind of the ex exploitation um, of, of, of black and brown labor that prevailed in, you know, during slavery in many prisons um, across America today. Hi, John McCauley. Um, thank you for your work. I just have to be totally honest and say that I question our capacity for the kind of mass social movement that you think we need, primarily not because necessarily of our tendency toward indifference, but instead because of this kind of insidious nature of this caste system as you describe it, where we actually brand people as having done something wrong, making it that much harder for the rest of us to get behind the cause, right? So I have to believe that a, a more incremental approach would be a more practical one. If you share that concern at all, do you think that a swing in the balance of the court would make any difference? Thanks. No. <laughs> well, I shouldn't say it would make some difference. It would make some difference. Do I, do I think it would make the kind of difference that would make a real difference um, in poor communities of color? No, I, I don't. Um, and, and, and here's why. Um, it just goes back to the sheer scale of this thing, right? You know, if we were to even try to have the prison population, which wouldn't even get us close to the rates of incarceration that were back in the 1970s, we would face such fierce resistance from economic interests, from rural communities where most of the new prison building has taken place, where those communities would then suffer economic collapse if prisons were to begin closing in these communities. And the debate that would be had wouldn't be a debate about jobs, right? It would be a racially charged debate about crime and the need to be tough on them, right? So ultimately, if we're going to end the system of mass incarceration, we are going to have to inspire. There's no way around it. We're going to have to inspire an ethic of care, compassion, and concern for people who have been branded criminals and people who exist in poor ghetto communities. 
we may make some changes, right? You know, now that there's busting state budgets and, you know, Schwarzenegger has <laughs> had his awakening that actually prisons are really expensive and maybe some money would be better spent on, um, you know, other things. Um, we might make some small gains, but the kind of change that would be necessary to do justice, anything even approaching justice for poor communities of color, is on such a large scale that nothing short of a social movement could make it possible. And I do hear a lot people saying, I just don't think there's any way this can happen. Now, in the 1940s and early 1950s, that's exactly what people told civil rights activists. There is no way this Jim Crow system is going to come to an end. No way. Right? And in fact, you know, civil rights organizers, you know, even after Brown versus Board, we're going down to the South trying to organize folks. You know, we have this idea that you know, black communities just like rose up right? Not so much. You know, civil rights activists went down to those communities and were trying to beg people to organize. And they often met resistance even within African-American communities who, you know, felt so resigned to the current system of control that it was nearly impossible to imagine that it could ever be brought to its knees. But it was. And we can do the same again. We have the capacity to do the same. Um, what it takes, though, <laughs> um, is no small thing, and it will require the kind of sacrifice and determination and courage um, that civil rights activists displayed back then, that prison, um, slave ab slavery abolitionists you know, displayed um, in the efforts to bring slavery to an end. So it'll take that kind of courage um, and that creativity and fierce determination, but I do believe, I wouldn't be doing this work if I didn't believe it was possible. My name is Jacqueline Alikani, and uh, first of all, I wanna thank you for writing this book. Thank you for being here. This is such Thanks. an important dialogue. And I just wanted to say that, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, becoming, obvi obviously, it's becoming very, very critical to have, um, to address a parallel issue to this problem of mass uh, criminaliz criminalization and incarceration of people of color, and that's the problem of systematic racism, discrimination, and harassment that is just rampant across the country. It's still happening everywhere. I mean, and to people like you and me every day, I know because I experience it. In your everyday life, I mean, you go to school, you think you're doing what, you, what is the right thing to do in life. You know, you go to school, you go to college, you get a job, and you go to work, and there are work environments that I think would parallel the prison system. People are criminalized at work and, and, in, and in many aspects of their lives. I'm experiencing it right now at my home in a gated community. We're being harassed constantly, every day. Our car is being vandalized. We're, we're not allowed to vote. We're told we don't have any rights. And there are all these agencies with all these beautiful goals and missions, like DFEH and all these other civil rights uh, agencies or whatever they are, um, and they don't really do anything. And it's like they open cases and they close cases. And there's like this unspoken code that you're not supposed to prosecute discrimination or racism cases because, you know, it doesn't really exist anymore. There's just paranoia. And 
what can we, I mean, until we address this issue that's happening to people in their everyday lives, um, I mean, this is happening to people before they go to prison. I mean, people are being victimized every day and children are seeing their parents harassed and, and some of us are stronger than others. I mean, some of us can tolerate that and you put two people in the same situation, one does well and one doesn't. So we've got to fix these issues before people end up in prison. I think we have to really do something about it. What can we do about these agencies to make them do their jobs? They don't do their job. Well, you know, I, I think the point you make is an important one, which is that, you know, racial bias is certainly not limited to the criminal justice system, right? You know, um, I think our criminal justice institutions are the primary vehicle for um, creating and maintaining racial hierarchy in the United States today. It's the primary vehicle for that. Um, but racial discrimination and the kind of bias you described, yeah, it can be found you know, throughout America in all different kinds of, 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 of arenas of life, employment, in your, you know, housing complex, on the street, when you go to the grocery store, it's, yes, it's there and it's real. And that's part of the cultural shift that I think is absolutely important. Um, you know, there's a really interesting um, law review article that was written by this guy, Tom Stoddard, who's actually the executive director, he was once the executive director of Lambda, kind of the nation's largest gay and lesbian rights organization. And in the article, he describes an experience that he had in the early 1990s where he was invited to a conference in New Zealand. And New Zealand at the time, you know, had these laws on the books that banned discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. And um, you know, gays and lesbians were allowed in the military, and he thought to himself, I cannot wait to go to New Zealand, this place that, you know, where discrimination is illegal, and, you know, all of the rights that we're struggling for here in the United States exist in New Zealand. I want to go to see what this kind of nirvana is like. And he gets to New, New Zealand, and he's stunned to discover that actually kind of the bigotry against gays and lesbians was more intense there than it was in the United States, and that gays and lesbians were more closeted in New Zealand than they were in his home city of New York. And he was trying to kind of figure out, like, what is this? You know, how could it possibly be that a place that has all these rules and laws on the books are actually worse, worse place for gays and lesbians in the United States? And he came to realize that in New Zealand, there had been no social movement. There had been no public debate or fight had been no culture shift in New Zealand that accompanied the new rules and laws. And just because you have new rules and laws in the book don't mean anything if the culture and the social consciousness has not been changed. And so he found that in the United States, gays and lesbians were actually better off because at least there had been a fight. There was a fight underway. Um, and consciousness had been raised um, about the humanity of gay and lesbian people. Um, and so, you know, when people talk to me today about, you know, well, we just need to change this law or that law. I'm like, well, yeah, we need to change those laws. But on a very deeper level, we've got to change our consciousness and the way we think about people of color in the United States. Um, because until we change as a nation how we think and how people of color are viewed, new caste systems, new forms of discrimination will continue to be reborn 
again and again um, as they have um, since our nation's founding. So, thanks. <laughs>